Case Five, Camp of the Dog, Part Five, of John Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Case Five, Camp of the Dog, Part Five. Although nothing John Silence ever did took me, properly speaking, by surprise, it was certainly unexpected to find a letter from Stockholm waiting for me. I have finished my Hungary business, he wrote, and I'm here for ten days. Do not hesitate to send if you need me. If you telephone any morning from Waxholm, I can catch the afternoon steamer. My years of intercourse with him were full of coincidences of this description and although he never sought to explain them by claiming any magical system of communication with my mind, I have never doubted that there actually existed some secret telepathic method by which he knew my circumstances and gauged the degree of my need, and that this power was independent of time in the sense that it saw into the future always seemed to me equally apparent. Sangree was as much relieved as I was, and within an hour of sunset that very evening we met him on the arrival of the little coasting steamer, and carried him off in the dinghy to the camp we had prepared on a neighboring island, meaning to start for home early next morning. Now, he said, when supper was over and we were smoking round the fire, let me hear your story. He glanced from one to the other, smiling. You tell it, Mr. Hubbard, Sangree interrupted abruptly, and went off a little way to wash the dishes, yet not so far as to be out of earshot and while he splashed with the hot water and scraped the tin plates with sand and moss, my voice, unbroken by a single question from Dr. Silence, ran on for the next half hour with the best account I could give of what had happened. My listener lay on the other side of the fire, his face half hidden by a big sombrero. Sometimes he glanced up questioningly when a point needed elaboration, but he uttered no single word till I had reached the end and his manner all through the recital was grave and attentive. Overhead, the wash of the wind in the pine branches filled in the pauses. The darkness settled down over the sea, and the stars came out in thousands, and by the time I finished, the moon had risen to flood the scene with silver. Yet by his face and eyes, I knew quite well that the doctor was listening to something he had expected to hear, even if he had not actually anticipated all the details. You did very well to send for me, he said, very low, with a significant glance at me when I finished. Very well. And for one swift second his eye took in Sangree. For what we have to deal with here is nothing more than a werewolf. Rare enough, I am glad to say, but often very sad and sometimes very terrible. I jumped as though I had been shot, but the next second was heartily ashamed of my want of control. For this brief remark, confirming as it did my own worst suspicions, did more to convince me of the gravity of the adventure than any number of questions or explanations. It seemed to draw close the circle about us, shutting a door somewhere that locked us in with the animal and the horror, and turning the key. Whatever it was had now to be faced and dealt with. No one has been actually injured so far, he asked aloud, but in a matter-of-fact tone that lent reality to grim possibilities. Good heavens, no, cried the Canadian, throwing down his dishcloths and coming forward into the circle of firelight. 
Surely there can be no question of this poor starved beast injuring anybody, can there? His hair straggled untidily over his forehead, and there was a gleam in his eyes that was not all reflection from the fire. His words made me turn sharply. We all laughed a little, short, forced laugh. I trust not indeed, Dr. Silence said quietly. But what makes you think the creature is starved? He asked the question with his eyes straight on the other's face. The prompt question explained to me why I had started, and I waited with just a tremor of excitement for the reply. Sangri hesitated a moment, as though the question took him by surprise, but he met the doctor's gaze unflinchingly across the fire, and with complete honesty. Really, he faltered, with a little shrug of his shoulders, I can hardly tell you. The phrase seemed to come out of its own accord. I have felt from the beginning that it was in pain and starved, though why I felt this never occurred to me until you asked. You really know very little about it, then, said the other, with a sudden gentleness in his voice. No more than that, Sangri replied, looking at him with a puzzled expression that was unmistakably genuine. In fact, nothing at all, really, he added by way of further explanation. I am glad of that, I heard the doctor murmur under his breath, but so low that I only just caught the words, and Sangri missed them altogether, as evidently he was meant to do. And now, he cried, getting on his feet and shaking himself with a characteristic gesture, as though to shake out the horror and the mystery. Let us leave the problem till tomorrow, and enjoy this wind and sea and stars. I've been living lately in the atmosphere of many people and I feel that I want to wash and be clean. I propose a swim and then bed. Who will second me? And two minutes later, we were all diving from the boat into cool, deep water that reflected a thousand moons as the waves broke away from us in countless ripples. We slept in blankets under the open sky, Sangri and I taking the outside places, and were up before sunrise to catch the dawn wind. Helped by this early start, we were halfway home by noon, and then the wind shifted to a few points behind us, so that we fairly ran, in and out among a thousand islands, down narrow channels where we lost the wind, out into open spaces where we had to take in a reef, racing along under a hot and cloudless sky, we flew through the very heart of the bewildering and lonely scenery. A real wilderness, cried Dr. Silence from his seat in the bows, where he held the jib sheet. His hat was off, his hair tumbled in the wind, and his lean brown face gave him the touch of an oriental. Presently he changed places with Sangri, and came down to talk with me by the tiller. A wonderful region, all this world of islands, he said, waving his hand to the scenery rushing past us. But doesn't it strike you that there's something lacking? It's hard, I answered, after a moment's reflection. It has a superficial, glittering prettiness, without... I hesitated to find the word I wanted. John Silence nodded his head with approval. Exactly, he said. The picturesqueness of stage scenery that is not real, not alive. It's like a landscape by a clever painter, yet without true imagination. Soulless. That's the word you wanted. Something like that, I answered, watching the gusts of wind on the sails. Not dead so much as without soul, that's it. Of course, he went on in a voice calculated, it seemed to me, not to reach our companion in the bows. To live long in a place like this, long and alone, might bring about a strange result in some men. 
I suddenly realized he was talking with a purpose, and pricked up my ears. There's no life here. These islands are mere dead rocks pushed up from below the sea, not living land, and there's nothing really alive on them. Even the sea, this tideless brackish sea, neither salt water nor fresh, is dead. It's all a pretty image of life without the real heart and soul of life. To a man with two strong desires who came here and lived close to nature, strange things might happen. Let her out a bit, I shouted the sangree who was coming aft. The wind's gusty, and we've got hardly any ballast. He went back to the bows, and Dr. Silence continued. Here, I mean, a long sojourn would lead to deterioration, to degeneration. The place is utterly unsoftened by human influences, by any humanizing associations of history, good or bad. This landscape has never awakened into life. It's still dreaming in its primitive sleep. In time, I put in, you mean a man living here might become brutal? The passions would run wild. Selfishness becomes supreme. The instincts coarsen and turn savage, probably. But in other places just as wild, parts of Italy, for instance, where there are other moderating influences, it could not happen. The character might grow wild, savage too, in a sense, but with a human wildness one could understand and deal with. But here in a hard place like this, it might be otherwise. He spoke slowly, weighing his words carefully. I looked at him with many questions in my eyes, and a precautionary cry to Sangree to stay in the forepart of the boat, out of earshot. First of all, there would come callousness to pain, and indifference to the rights of others. Then the soul would turn savage, not from passionate human causes, or with enthusiasm, but by deadening down into a kind of cold, primitive, emotionless savagery by turning, like the landscape, soulless. And a man with strong desires, you say, might change? Without being aware of it, yes, he might turn savage. His instincts and desires turn animal. And if, he lowered his voice and turned for a moment towards the bows, and then continued in his most weighty manner. Owing to delicate health or other predisposing causes, his double, you know what I mean, of course, his etheric body of desire, or astral body, as some term it, that part in which the emotions, passions, and desires reside, if this, I say, were for some constitutional reason loosely joined to his physical organism, there might well take place an occasional projection. Sangree came aft with a sudden rush, his face aflame, but whether with wind or sun or with what he had heard, I cannot say. In my surprise, I let the tiller slip, and the cutter gave a great plunge as she came sharply into the wind and flung us all together in a heap on the bottom. Sangree said nothing, but while he scrambled up and made the jib-sheet fast, my companion found a moment to add to his unfinished sentence the words, too low for any ear but mine, entirely unknown to himself, however. We righted the boat and laughed, and then Sangree produced the map and explained exactly where we were. Far away on the horizon, across an open stretch of water, lay a blue cluster of islands with our crescent-shaped home among them and the safe anchorage of the lagoon. An hour with this wind would get us there comfortably, and while Dr. Silence and Sangree fell into conversation, I sat and pondered over the strange suggestions that had just been put into my mind concerning the double, and the possible form it might assume when dissociated temporarily from the physical body. 
The whole way home these two chatted, and John's silence was as gentle and sympathetic as a woman. I did not hear much of their talk, for the wind grew occasionally to the force of a hurricane, and the sails and tiller absorbed my attention. But I could see that Sangree was pleased and happy, and was pouring out intimate revelations to his companion in the way that most people did, when John Silence wished them to do so. But it was quite suddenly, while I sat all intent upon wind and sails, that the true meaning of Sangree's remark about the animal flared up in me with its full import. For his admission that he knew it was in pain and starved was in reality nothing more or less than a revelation of his deeper self. It was in the nature of a confession. He was speaking of something that he knew positively, something that was beyond question or argument, something that had to do directly with himself. Poor starved beast, he had called it, in words that had come out of their own accord, and there had not been the slightest evidence of any desire to conceal or explain away. He had spoken instinctively, from his heart, and as though about his own self. And half an hour before sunset, we raced through the narrow opening of the lagoon, and saw the smoke of the dinner-fire blowing here and there among the trees, and the figures of Joan and the boatswain's mate running down to meet us at the landing-stage. End of Case 5 Camp of the Dog, Part 5